Today's podcast is brought to you by Freshly. If you don't have a lot of time to cook, like me, but you still want to serve your family fresh, nutritious meals, well then Freshly is exactly what you need. Fresh meals are delivered right to your front door. Our listeners can get six dinners cooked for only $39. Just visit Freshly.com and enter promo code FLAN639. That's FLAN, like my last name, F-L-A-N 639, to start changing the way you eat. I'm Asia Mape, and this is the I Love to Watch You Play podcast. Today, we're welcoming Jane Aluconis, founder of College Committed. College Committed is an online service dedicated to helping young women who want to play college soccer find the right school fit and help them through the recruiting process. Hi, Jane. How are you today? Hi, Asia. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Now, let's dive right into it. I want to know why did you or how did you decide to create College Committed? Well, a few years ago, I was coaching a U16 girls team, so I actually went through the process myself, but then I went through it again with my players and their parents, and it's a really, really complicated and convoluted process. There was a lot of anxiety and stress involved with the players and their families, and so I went online to look for resources for my players, and I didn't really see anything that I would have pushed them towards, so it kind of motivated me to create something that not only my players could use, but other players throughout the country. All right. Well, how is College Committed different than maybe some of the other recruiting sites out there? That's a great question. So I think the biggest issue in the college recruiting process is players and parents don't really know which schools they should be looking at. So very often I have parents say, my daughter wants to play here, or is my daughter good enough to play at this school? Should we be looking D1, D2? Or, you know, my daughter wants to go to UNC is something that we get a lot. If you're not targeting schools that are good soccer and academic fits, you're going to spend a lot of time and in some cases a lot of money if you're visiting these schools or attending camps and you won't make a whole lot of progress in your recruiting journey. So to solve this problem, I studied the rosters of uh, thousands of college players. I looked at player profiles. I looked at academics at certain schools and I tried to determine what level of player and student gets recruited by certain schools. So from that, we created a matching questionnaire so that players can take a quiz and be matched up with schools that have recruited players like them in the past. I think the other big pain point is, well, how do I actually navigate the process? And this usually turns into about 50 common questions, like how do I email a coach? Should I call a coach? What division should I play? So I think the other big differentiator is our webinar library. So with the help of a lot of college coaches, I put together about 50 webinars that explain how to do all these things in a pretty efficient manner. So I was lucky enough to interview coaches from Duke and UCLA, UNC, Rollins and some other schools. And the webinars include snippets from these coaches that I felt were powerful and and would be helpful to recruits. That's really awesome. I've actually used the site for my daughter and they are incredible and great resources. Thanks. Let's dive right into what some of the parents are, are wondering. What age do you need to start thinking about doing this and going through the process if your child wants to play in college? Great question. So I actually help at a high school and I help all sports So it can be really, really different based on the sport. Girls soccer is the earliest that I've seen. You probably need to start your research in about eighth grade. And some of the other actions like emailing and calling maybe a little later, like ninth or 10th grade. But the soccer process is really accelerated. So the sooner, the better. Um, For other sports, some are as late as, you know, senior spring. But I would say the earlier you can start on any of these actions, the better. So I know in, in certain sports and even in women's soccer, 
that they're verbally committing kids in, as young as seventh or eighth grade. Can you explain what the, the rules are around that a little bit? Great question. The rules are basically if players are contacting the coaches, that's compliant. So if a coach picks, if an eighth grader calls a coach and they pick up the phone, they can have a conversation. They can verbally commit. There's no rule in terms of what year. However, they won't sign their national letter of intent until senior year. So technically, that's when everything is set in stone. And, and so it's just going to be the top, top recruits that would do a verbal at that age, right? That's all I've ever heard of. But again, those players may be peaking very early. And so there's an issue with that because they may become juniors and they may fall out of love with soccer. There's a lot that goes on between your eighth and your 12th grade year. So it's risky all around. Um, and it's not ideal for any of the parties in, in my mind, but it is happening. Okay, well, moving on, what are the first or most important steps a parent should do when they're thinking about helping their child get into college? I think a big piece that a lot of families miss because it's not explicitly known or stated is that they need to have an overall plan that's compiled by the player and the parent. 99% of the time when I'm working with students, they might be emailing or they're calling or they're going on some visits, but there's no actual document. There's no actual strategy or plan behind any of it. So I always encourage families to sit down, map out the schools that they're looking at that are realistic fits, and then figure out for each of those schools how they're going to get in front of those coaches. Okay, great. What if you're one of those that sort of, well, if you were a late bloomer and you didn't do all that and now you're a junior, you're loving soccer, you're doing well, is it too late by then? Or is there like a, a timeline that you miss? I think most players that I know that went on to play college soccer played club for a number of years. A lot of them play for 10 plus years before going on to play collegiately. I would say if you're in high school and you've never played club, you may need to think that that might be a little too late. I interviewed Savannah Jordan, who was a standout at University of Florida. She didn't pick up soccer till I think she was 13. She's super athletic and she was one of the best. She's still one of the best players in the game. So I think it can happen. However, um, realistically, usually if you're not playing by the time you're in high school, you're probably not going to go on to play collegiately. What if you were playing and you're playing at a club, but you haven't done much in terms of looking or reaching out to colleges and you sort of decide late that you actually do want to play. Is there is there ever a time where it's too late if you are a good player? I don't think so. I've heard college coaches say that even if a player is a senior, if they're really good and they're going to fit in on their team and make an impact, that they'll pick them up. So from the college's standpoint, they may not have money left, but if a player is good enough, they're going to want to pick them up. In girls soccer especially, there's a ton of opportunity. So if you're a good player, I think that the door is going to stay open. So what if you're a good soccer player? You don't know how good you are. You're not sure what college is in your range, but you, you're hoping to play at a top school. What are some things that you offer on the website and your checklist to see if you could play at a Stanford or UCLA or one of those amazing schools? So one thing that I learned when I was researching the rosters at these top schools is a lot of these players have credentials outside of just playing for their club team. Maybe they got called into a U.S. soccer training center. Maybe they got called into an ID2 event. So these are players that have been identified by scouts of, of different organizations throughout the country. 90 to 99 percent of players on these top rosters do meet that profile of course, there are diamonds in the rough in some cases. I know the UCLA coach will talk about Haley Mace, who's her, her starting forward, who played on a small club team in a small town. 
that's not the typical uh, recruit. However, uh, it does happen. But I think for the most part, to play at one of these top, top schools, you're usually starting to be identified when you're 13, 14. You may be part of a youth national team or you're getting picked up forever up for other national level events. All right, Jane, what about, thank you, what about the the difference between playing for D1, D2, or D3? Can you get into that a little bit? Sure. And I actually love that question because I think there's great players at every level. So I live close to Eastern Florida. I live close to Rollins. Rollins is D2, Eastern Florida is junior college. And there's some really, really strong players at both of those programs. I watched FIT play against Eckerd the other day, and it was it was really high-level soccer. It was really quick-paced. The, the players were very athletic. It was it was really, really fun to watch. And my friends and I are, are going to go again. So I think that it's really important to, to remember that there's great players, there's great teams, there's great coaches at all levels. Yes, is, is Division One going to be the top and have the top teams like Stanford and Florida and FSU? Yes. However, um, there's there's great options at every level. And we often send players to D2 and junior college uh, schools and they they really, really love it. It's the same level of commitment and it's a really high level of soccer. So I think that's important for players to remember and not not discount programs just because they're not D1. And will D2 and D3 be a little more manageable as far as your life soccer balance? I would think so. However, you can go to a D3 that's MIT or that's Emory and it's a really high level uh, challenging academic course. And you can also go to any level of, of school and, and major in something that will take you to med school afterwards. So I think it's all going to be personal choice. But yes, there will be a little less soccer in terms of hours at D2, D3, and junior college, probably. Got it. And you've spoken with, and you were, you were obviously a, a great soccer player at Duke. What separates the kids that play end up playing in college from those that don't besides I guess the obvious of burnout and they don't want to but as far as skill level or attitude or what are some things that you've noticed a huge thing is love for the game so I have players that I train that have played that play at all different levels in college but they absolutely love soccer and they don't care if they're playing d3 they don't care if they're junior college they don't care if they're starting or if they're playing 20 minutes whenever they get the opportunity to play they absolutely love it the other big piece, I think, is willingness to put in the work and not make excuses. I think so many girls play soccer around the country that if you're not willing to train and take your training regimen really, really seriously, that someone else is going to do that. So when I see the girls at the, co- the college players that come and train with us during the summer at the club, doesn't matter what level, they love to come out and play and they put in as much work as top D1 players. So a, a balance between the love and the work rate. Okay. Great. And what about um, what when you do or if you do get to play in college, is there a lot of scholarship money or financial aid? And how, how does that differentiate? I know it does from D1, D2 and D3 a little bit. Can you talk on that? Sure. So Division One coaches have 14 scholarships if they're fully funded. A lot of my friends who coach collegiately say their programs are not fully funded, which is really challenging on the coaches side. The average roster size, say for D1, is about 28 players. So if you average that out, that's about 50% soccer scholarship per player. Obviously, it doesn't really fall that way. Some players will be on full scholarship. Some players will be walk-ons. So I think that a lot of parents and players think that coaches have a lot more scholarships to work with than they actually do. And that's that's the feedback that I get commonly from college coaches is that parents 
express somewhat of a disappointment sometimes based on offers. And, and it just shows them that they don't realize the amount of scholarship that coaches have to work with. Right. And what about when you go down to D2 and D3 and it becomes more of a financial aid question? Do they give you financial aid based on your soccer skills? They can't really do that. However, if you're, that's why academics are extremely important. So I have a player that went on to play at a D2 school around here. I know the coach and the coach told me that she's not fully funded. I didn't really understand how that worked if the coach wasn't fully funded. However, I learned through the player and the coach that my player was actually on a full academic ride. So she had good grades and she was able to get a full scholarship and Players usually don't care if they're on a full academic scholarship or a full soccer scholarship their college is paid for. So academics are extremely important. And that, I think, will move you up in the recruiting chart if, if coaches are looking at two players that are of equal talent. And even today, you need something, you need to be great at your sport just to even get into a good school. It's become so competitive. I think athletes definitely have a bit of an advantage because they can show that they can manage their sport and their academics and everything else that's going on in their life. For example, one of my friends at Duke, he was a triathlete. Now, there's no triathlete scholarships at Duke, nor is that even a sport there. However, they saw that on his resume, and he thinks that really helped him get into Duke over some other applicants. So I think it's definitely a smoother process if you play a sport. I know the coaches will typically flag the players that that will be on their team. And admissions kind of look at it with a different eye. I'm not saying that they let in players that shouldn't be let into the school, but it definitely shows that they can handle uh, their school load and their soccer load and be able to have good time management. All right. So, Jane, tell me some of the stuff that us parents are doing wrong or some of the crazy things that you've you've heard or seen in the recruiting process. Sure. So I think one thing that breaks my heart is when a coach will say, well, the parent kind of ruined it for the player, which is so sad to think about. And I think that that happens when the parent tries to take over the process, when the parent comes on campus and does all the talking. The way it was framed to me by a college coach, which I really liked how she said this, she said, is the mom putting on the uniform or the dad putting on the uniform or is the child? Who am I going to coach for four years? That's the person that I want to get to know. I think there's other things that are rare, but they do happen probably more often than we think. And that's, I guess, fibbing a little about your offers. I know it's a really, really competitive process, but I've heard in cases where parents will say, well, if they're at a, a certain school, they will use that school's competitors and say, well, we've already gotten an offer here. We've gotten a full ride offer here. Coaches are friends. Yes, they're very competitive. But at the end of the day, they're sitting on the sideline recruiting next to each other. They're friends. So they talk too. And the second a kid lies or a parent lies about an offer that they've gotten, it just really doesn't sit well. So I, I think it's really good to let your daughter do the talking. I think that that says a lot about the player. She might not do everything perfectly, but that's that's okay. And And coaches understand that the players are seventh through 12th graders. And they, they think it's really brave of a player to actually take things on on their own and, and be their own person and speak for themselves. Okay. I like that. What if you have a bad coach? So you're a club, you're a club coach yourself. If parents and their athlete have a coach who doesn't, you know, a coach can like a player, not like a player for one reason or another. What do you think about the club hopping and transferring clubs, especially for those reasons? I think that your coach is a huge part of your soccer career. 
I think it's important to play for someone who you believe in and who you feel like is getting you better every single time you go to their practice. And they also believe in you. I think playing time, sometimes you may be coming off the bench, and I don't think that's necessarily the worst thing in the world. If you're playing for a coach who you respect and you enjoy and the training sessions challenge you, I think that's of the utmost importance. When I interviewed Anson Dorrance, he said that the letters, ECNL, ODP, all these other abbreviations should come secondary. He said the first thing you should look for is a coach who you like playing for in an environment that you enjoy and that challenges you. So I couldn't agree more with that. I think that's really important. What if you're coming off the bench, you have a decent coach and you like him, but you're coming off the bench and not getting a lot of playing time and you're sort of comparable to the person who's who's the starting in front of you. I mean, those are tough, tough choices for parents sometimes because they feel well, we're running out of time to get to possibly play in college. And if my kid isn't starting, my kid isn't getting a lot of time, what's going to happen to those chances? Absolutely. I think if we're talking, you're playing five to 10 minutes a game, I think you need to be on the field to be seen. If we're talking that you're sharing time with another player that may be similar ability, maybe you're each getting 40 minutes of the game or 45 minutes of the game, I think that's enough to be seen. I think at the end of the day, you'll have to make that decision on your own. Do you go somewhere else and play the majority of minutes? You're not even guaranteed to play all the minutes at the club that you change to. I think that if you're able to justify to a college coach why you changed teams and you didn't do it 10 times, then they're not going to label you as a club hopper. As long as you have a, a logical reason and it's it's best for your playing career and you didn't burn bridges at the previous club, then I, then I think it's perfectly fine. I think the problem is when players do it over and over and always think the grass is greener somewhere else. What about players switching positions? I mean, everyone says it's good to know a lot of different positions, but a lot of times in club, our players are sort of typecast into one role and haven't had a lot of experience at other spots. Yeah, I think that it's really important to be versatile. I think that if you say you're a really, really good forward and you're a freshman, but there's four really strong forwards that are upperclassmen that are a little more developed than you. But the coach may still really want you on the field. He or she's going to have to find a place that that works to the benefit of the team. A lot of times you'll see forwards that transition to outside backs because wingers these days are getting really high and almost look like forwards a lot of the time. So I think it's great to be flexible and it'll increase your chances of getting on the field. I can name a a handful of players that I know that play at really high levels and, and they play different positions even at the highest level. So I think it's super important. It's important, but it doesn't seem like a lot of the coaches work on doing that for the younger players and moving them around. They kind of just find their fit and and leave them there. I think that's true. I think at the college level, coaches will do that because they have, in some cases, so many weapons and they have to figure out where to put all of them. Um, At the club level, I think coaches may be working with the same players for a number of years and they know their strongest position. I think college coaches have a vision though, and they can watch players, even if it's in one position and picture them on the field for them in a different position. So even if your coach isn't playing you in multiple positions, the college coach is sophisticated enough to be able to say, okay, that kid could work as an outside back for me, or that kid could be my, my future center back. Okay. Awesome. And what about burnout in general? Nowadays we're playing year round. How do you, Or what do you do as a club coach to keep that from happening? This is a hard question for me because 
and I coach some of the younger girls that are smiling and laughing all during practice. And, and I don't see burnout in their eyes at all. However, I know it happens. I know it happened to me and I know it happens to players at different points in their career. I think it's, it, I'm big on not making practices too long. So for me, an hour and 15 minutes, that's about all I would ever have my kids go. I think that kids need time off when they need it. We do press them to train on their own and get better as much as they can. However, when they need days off, it's really important to take those days off too. So I think also parents shouldn't push players into a certain level of commitment. For example, I coach a U16 C team and we train two days a week and we have one to two games a week. And that team is full of players who love the game and they want to play for fun. And they're not necessarily setting their eyes on college soccer or anything thereafter, but they love to play. So if if you're not somebody that wants to play academy five days a week and a game on the weekend, then maybe look at other options and do the level that, that keeps you loving the game. Okay, good advice. And what about one last last thing? Just what's your overall, if you had to pick one piece of advice for young girls out there who want to play soccer in college? I think if you really want it, you have to put in the work. Like I said earlier, if you're not putting in the work, someone else will. There's hundreds of thousands of girls in this country that are playing soccer with the same aspirations as you if you want to play college soccer. So I think that it's highly competitive and you have to put in the work. It's not going to be handed to you. All right, Jane, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And I want to say again, College Committed is a terrific resource. And I know I've used it for my daughter and will continue to use it. How do people find it? And what what do they need to do once they're there? Thank you. So it's actually just collegecommitted.com. And then along the top bar, there's a sign up tab. And there's lots of other stuff on the site. So um, you may not have a player that plays soccer, or you might not have someone in that age category yet. And there's lots of other free resources, like a free webinar. There's lots of blog articles. So definitely go look around. That would be great. Jane, thank you so much for taking the time. And um, we really appreciate all your insight and hope to talk to you again very soon. Thank you very much for having me.